We've spent the last six weeks uh, talking about what it would be like if God possessed us fully, completely, that we were indwelling uh, in, in the Holy Spirit and the Spirit was in us. And I know that this idea, it seems, is spreading throughout our congregation. It's changing the way that we read Scripture. There's about 80, at least, verses out on the drum cage out in the atrium, which is certainly encouraging to see. It's been encouraging for me personally, uh, for, for me to find new ways to engage with a God that I've known for so long. Um, I was telling uh, Jason and Stephanie Runyon just a couple nights ago, as an introvert, I don't often you know, enjoy being in front of large audiences, um, so it takes a while to get up for that. But I remember a speaking engagement not long ago where I was ready to go out to the side, and we were in the middle of this series. And that phrase, if you remain in me and I will remain in you, you will bear much fruit. This is to the Father's glory. The Father loves this when you bear much fruit. And I thought to myself, um, there's a lot of things that introverts can't do, but one thing we're good at is remaining. <laughs> we're good remainers. We're usually loyal people. Relationships are really important to us. We understand relationships. We just don't have a ton of them. You extroverts have tons of relationships. You just don't understand them. <laughs> Someday we'll get our minds together. But the relief and the freedom that you have, knowing I have but one thing to do on this day, and that is to remain in Him, I don't have to succeed. There's a tremendous amount of liberty in that. And I hope that you felt that uh, over the past few weeks, or something like that, as you've, con as you've uh, contemplated these messages. There's a phrase I want to put on the screen for you now. Before I elevate the question one last time, it's from the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. I've condensed it to just a few phrases. He said, Father, my prayer is not for the world. My prayer is for those that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, verse 11. Then verse 23, then the world will know that you have sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, my prayer is not for the world. My prayer is for those that you've given me. Make them one as we are one, because when that happens, then the world will know. So, even though Jesus is not praying for the world, the world is not far from his mind. He just has a different strategy of getting that world. It's not just to pray for them. It's to actually mobilize a community of people that will stand as his presence in the world. So a few weeks ago, I asked you to imagine, if you could, a person who was possessed by the Spirit of God in the same way that someone else might be possessed by a demon, only with similar but opposite results. 
as a person possessed by a demon might speak clairvoyantly or the demons speak clairvoyantly through them, this person possessed by the Spirit of God would speak the very words of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. As if God himself was speaking through us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As a person who was possessed by a demon uh, might have a distorted personality. They pull away from people. They engage in antisocial, self-destructive behaviors, cut themselves. So a person who is possessed by the Spirit of God might have the personality of God take over their personality. So that in spite of all the friction and chaos that's in the world, they would be a calm and stable, unflappable person. They would be filled with joy and do everything out of love. Is that possible? As a person might be possessed by a demon, might show superhuman strength, breaking chains when they are held back and terrifying people with their outrage, so a person who is possessed by the Spirit of God might possess supernatural strength so that the work that they do would be even better because God was in it. They might even do the very works that Jesus himself did, scratch that. They might even do better works than the works that Jesus has did. I'm not talking Jesus is. John chapter 14. As a person possessed by the Spirit of God might terrify people around them, inflicting abuse and profanity and uh, violence against the people that they oppress. So a person possessed by the Spirit of God might suffer that abuse and that violence and that profanity instead of overpowering it, yield to it, and so conquer it. Imagine if you could, a person so possessed, they know the very thoughts of God. Imagine someone who has Jesus' mind. I don't mean he thinks like Jesus. I mean he has Jesus' appetites, his desires, his imaginations, his affections. Imagine that this person's affections mirror the affections of Jesus. Are you with me? Now the question is, how big of an impact do you think that person would make in their workplace? Just one of them. Just picture that. Now I realize it would depend on their status. It would depend on their profile a lot of things. But is there really any place you can hide somebody who is that possessed? Is there any way that they could not affect the people immediately around them? Can you imagine that? Now I want to elevate the question. 
Imagine a room full of them. They get together every seven days. They come from five different generations. So that every time they get together, they have the capacity to affect changes immediately in the here and now. And because they have so many future generations in their community, they can affect things several years from now. How big of an impact do you think that community would have on a city? Think about that. It's hard enough to consider one of these people. But can you imagine the collective power of a room full of these people? If you can, you're starting to see what Jesus is praying for in John 17. Look at it. You have Bibles that are in front of you on your phones somewhere. In John 17, all of the pronouns are corporal. He's not praying that I would be possessed or that you would be possessed. He's praying that all of us would be possessed. And so the prayer of John 17 is for a community. It's not for an individual. So when Jesus prays, he's praying what is closest to his heart. This is a prayer, not a bucket list. So he's not praying, Lord, I ask for these things to be done before I leave. In fact, he's leaving. He's praying that these things will be done after he leaves, in the community that he is leaving behind. This is important to me, because if you let a bunch of Wesleyans interpret John 17, they will come up with a to-do list every single time. We'll take a prayer and make it into an agenda and say, here's what Jesus prayed for. Now, what are the four things we should all be working on? Because Jesus is praying for this. Wait a second. This is a prayer not a list. And since I can't imagine the Father turning him down, can you? Father, I pray that you would make them one. No. No. Protect them by the power of your name. No, they're on their own. No. He's praying for this, and so it's going to happen. Everybody exhale. You don't have to make this happen. The triune God is going to do this. But that doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Because even though he is not talking to us, he is talking about us. And whenever you can hear somebody talk about you, wouldn't you kind of like to hear what they want? So this week as I laid the vision of our church, next to the prayer of John 17, this was 
an important correction for me. Because whatever our church does as a body, we can do what we want. But we have to make sure that we are not over here doing one set of things while Jesus is over there praying for another set of things. Because the stuff that he prays for is going to happen. So if you want what you're working on to be successful, then you ought to maybe align some of what you're doing with what he's going to do anyway, and then you will have his success. Does that make sense? So what does he want? Well, the good news is the prayer, while 26 verses, is not filled with requests. It's an interior conversation between the triune God. He's not airing a list. There are four things he asks for. One of them pertains to himself and the Father. It's in verse 1. It's in verse 5. Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. That's an ask. Again in verse 5, he says, Give me the glory I had Before the world began, that's a direct ask. That's between him and the Father. Now the other three involve us. One of those is in verse 11. Look at it. I pray that you would protect them by the power of your name. That's a direct ask. Doesn't happen unless he asks for it. The second one is in verse 17. I pray that you would sanctify them or make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. That's a direct ask. The third one is in verse 21. I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. You see it? That's a direct ask. Now these three things, the protection of his people, that's us. The holiness or sanctification of his people, that's us. And the unity of his people, which is us are not three random poles standing in the ground. They form a line of thought. Let me say it differently. The prayer is not a list of three things. The prayer is a movement from one thing to the next to the next. So while each one of these components, protection, holiness, and unity, is important, It's not as important as the direction that the prayer is going. It ends with a prayer for unity. But he knows that he can't have unity unless he gets the other two things first. And so he prays to start with that we would be protected by the power of his name. From what? He'll tell you in verse 16. Some of you still looking at me. You must have it memorized. He says, protect them from the evil one. He is not afraid 
that we are going to be persecuted. He's already told us we would be in chapter 16. They'll try to kill you. He told us that. So why would he pray that we be protected from something he just said was going to happen? He's not praying that we would be not persecuted. He's afraid that we will be compromised. He's not afraid that we'll be killed. He's afraid we'll be distracted. That is the biggest threat to our holiness. Just like our holiness is the biggest threat to our unity. I have no doubt, as I look across this congregation right now, I have no doubt that every single one of us has enough desire to be entirely holy. I have no doubt at all. I just don't think we have it for long. You know what I mean? I think we have it now. Because we're together, and so it's easy to think about these things. It's the distractions, it's the things that pull us off course after the service is over. It, it isn't persecution, it's temptation that is our biggest problem. Are we close? And so he prays that we would be spared from the power of temptation. Let him pray. Because if he can protect us, then he can make us holy. And the way that he makes us holy, he says, is by the truth. And your word is the truth. There's a lot more to that than being a Bible-believing Christian. He's not saying, Lord, make them holy, make them love the Bible. Although we will. He's saying that we would be purveyors of truth. It isn't just believing our Bibles. It isn't just having our devotions. It's actually believing the stuff that is in the Bible enough to do it, even when it is hard and unnatural. Because we believe that the Bible is the best description of the way the world runs, that the people the Bible blesses end up better off. And it's the deep-seated conviction that the Word of God is the truth about the world and the capacity to act according to that truth on a daily basis that will actually sanctify us together. It's the Word of God read and practiced by the people of God. It's a beautiful picture. Can't happen unless he can protect us. But if he can protect us, then he can make us holy. Again, 
I wish I'd have known this a while ago. I'd have quit trying so hard to be a holy person. I took this as an order, as a command. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy. Now, I know some of you this morning feel like you're a long ways from holiness. I know this. I know some of you are just getting started, and some of you have come here for a long time, and you've got stuff popping up in your mind like little pop-ups on your Internet all the time. And you're thinking to yourself, I've tried this a long time, and I can't do this. I got some good news for you this morning. You have help. You do. You have the Son of God praying every day for your holiness. I have no reason to believe that he ever stopped praying John 17. We know that he is at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. What do you think he is saying? Do you think he's moved on to other things? Or is he actually saying the same things you're reading in John 17? Only this morning, this morning before you got up, he said it for you. So in spite of how you feel this morning, how optimistic or pessimistic you may feel, I hope you are encouraged by this, that the Son of God is before the Father's throne interceding for your holiness. I can't imagine God turning him down. If that can happen, then he can make us one. And if he can make us one, then the world has a chance. Right now, we are inundated with commercials and advertisements about politicians who want... Um, who want certain offices. And I think one of the side effects of that is it sometimes lures us to believe that those offices are what change the world. If I'm reading John 17 right, you guys, the only crack that the world has at believing is a unified church. It isn't the right person in the right office doing our agendas. It's a unified church. Because when the world sees a unified church committed to each other and to the triune God in the same way that God is committed to himself within that perfect community, when the world sees that, they can't not want that. They don't even have to be religious. They don't even have to think they have sins. They'll figure that out later. But when they see the unity of a church active in the world that is not overtaken by the world, then they have a chance at believing. So as I laid our vision next to John 17, this is what I saw. In order for the world to have a chance at knowing the Father and the Son, they need a church.
that has a strong interior. They are being sanctified or made holy by the Word of God, read and practiced in their presence. And that same church is going to have to have an outward focus. Father, I am leaving the world, he says, but I'm leaving them behind. They're staying in the world. But sanctify them while they stay in the world. So at the same time we are made holy, we are to be rooted in this world. And at the same time we are valuable to this world, we are to be made holy. You understand, churches have defaults. Some churches focus on being deep, on having a strong interior. Other churches focus on being wide, on having a broad outward focus. Whenever we plant churches today, we usually plant them with a bias towards breadth, towards width, towards reaching people that we haven't reached before. I don't know of too many churches being planted so we can take people deeper. I know of churches being planted so we can reach people that we haven't reached before. So clearly, the bias in most churches in America today is for breadth. Their problem is depth. But this, however, is college church. We think deep. And by deep, I don't mean smart, educated, eloquent, refined, polished. That ain't deep. That's culture, not depth. I mean, we have in our congregation, right here, right now, in this room, world-class disciples. That I would put up next to any disciple the church has made for 2,000 years. in terms of the sacrifice that some of you have made, in terms of your love for God and your genuine love for others, I see radical conversions taking place in our church. And not all of them are conversions from unchristian to Christian. There were 24 people this year that declared a call to be full-time ministers someday. That's a conversion of some sort. There are people committing to communities, allowing small groups to tell them what to do. <laughs> the same people who wouldn't let anybody tell them what to do are suddenly being formed by their community. This is a beautiful thing. These are real changes that are taking place. Our problem is not so much with depth. Our problem is with width. We need to see in our church more people who come into our church without Christ instead of feeling like they have to be um, converted and then holy before they can 
come into our midst. And I and we'll be careful about this because I think we are one of a very engaging congregation. I know I say that from the center of the church, but I've heard other people say it too. I've been in other congregations where people were friendlier, but I have more friends here. So I think we are genuinely making vast improvements in the width of our church. Let me talk a little bit before I close about some of the stuff that we're going to focus on in our church. When it comes to the depth of our church, what we the staff want to see from our members, the people that are in the core, is we want to see people commit to three hours a week. One of those hours is in worship, okay? So you're in it right now. Check. Got it? A second hour is to spiritual formation. That is belonging to some group or some class where you can take what is being heard and break it down and talk about how you apply that to your life. Now about 800 of us are already involved in some kind of small group or class. There's 82 different people in our church that are leaders of groups. So this is an, that's a really good statistic. And so those numbers are up, but the second hour that we're looking for is for someone to say, I'm not only going to commit to public worship, I'm going to commit to a time with a smaller group where I can talk about the application of that worship in my personal life. That's the second one. The third hour is an outreach. It's to do something for the community, for the area that we live in. It's to release every week, an army of people who volunteer for things across our community. Or it's a volunteer ministry inside of the church where you say, this isn't just about working on my spiritual life. This is about me giving something of myself to somebody else. Those are the three hours that we're looking for. And I think we're making improvement on every one of those areas. In the fall, we'll do like a live stream service. It's about time college church do this. We have collegians that leave and they, they say, I'm going to miss college church and, and you've been so important to me. And then with, they sort of go, when are you guys going to get with it and do something from the 2000s? and stream the services so we can watch it. We know that people watch the services or the sermons in 32 different countries around the world, and some of them could watch it live because it would be 6 in the evening, say, when it was 10 a.m. here. You see it? So we'll do this in the fall, and we think that will help broaden the reach of our worship hour You'll also see coming in the fall the release of catechisms and new programs that different ministries in the church are already beginning to refine right now. So in the fall we can release these things and in a more systematic way build and develop our disciples. You'll also see us release in the fall a thing called Immigrant Connection which again is an opportunity for college church to form relationships with people who are trying to become legal citizens in our culture. And as Bo has said before so eloquently, I know you guys are divided on this kind of things, and I think Bo has helped us. He said, remember, immigration is a political issue, but an immigrant is a person. 
And remember, you were an immigrant once. Moses said, you came from foreign countries. And people were gracious to you. And so you'll see us release in the fall an opportunity to start becoming friends, better friends with those from other countries. Not all of them Hispanic, but a large number of them are in order to direct them towards some church. In terms of our wit, um, we are making incredible impact at the Francis Slocum community. We have 106 mentors, but listen to this. Last year they donated over 9,000 hours 85 hours per mentor with an at-risk child that the school assigned to us because people are transformed in relationships, not with information. They're transformed in relationships. You'll see us become, in the next year, uh, more aggressive in Mexico. We're going to try to help them put a roof on that uh, church that they've got down there. And, uh, buddy, they need it. They need it. I remember standing and looking at that open sky next to Jarvis Ferguson, who, by the way, is responsible for the entire region in Latin America. And as I looked up at the open sky and watched our Mexican brothers raise the roof, I said to him, so how does this compare with other countries that are poorer, say Bolivia, he said, no, this is as bad as it gets. They lost their roof eight, ten years ago. And so this morning, while you were getting in the shower and I was pacing the back room, they were literally raising the roof. And this year, we want to go down there with them and help to raise that thing. Are you in?